G'day, Dave here, and we're looking at Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and the Lion's Den. And I want to ask you the question, is this just a good children's story? Now, there's no doubt that it is a good children's story. It's in uh, most of the children's Bibles, I'd imagine. I've been buying a few uh, books for children, uh, as I've got grandkids, Daniel and the Very Hungry Lions. Uh, it, it's certainly a good story, but is it more than that? And is it for more than just young kids? Well, yes, it is. Here's another one. Uh, Daniel and the Lion's Den. Well, I didn't read it right, did I? It's actually Jesus and the Lion's Den. A true story about how Daniel points us to Jesus. And this one, I think, they're both good, but this one gets us to the heart of what Daniel is all about. In fact, not just Daniel, but the whole of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is its fulfillment. And God has given us the Old Testament so that we learn to trust Jesus. And in trusting Jesus, we become thoroughly equipped to live a life in relationship with God. Now, let's have a look then at Daniel chapter 6. And as we do that, it will be a message for young kids, but it will also be a message for young adults and older adults and even really old adults, uh, if we've got any of them. Now, a recap on the story. Daniel's been in Babylon and under Nebuchadnezzar and various other kings, and then under Belshazzar, he keeps kind of rising to the top and being given responsibility. The Babylonian Empire, though, has come to a crashing halt. Uh, the Medes and the Persians have overthrown Babylon, and now Darius the Mede has been appointed the ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. But Daniel again rises to the top. He's uh, one of three administrators responsible for overseeing probably a fairly dodgy bunch of satraps or governors uh, in the kingdom. And these guys are all a bit jealous of Daniel. They're racist as well. I mean, they're not happy with an exile from Judah ruling over them and being given such prominence in the kingdom. And they can't catch him out in his misbehavior because he doesn't misbehave. And so they hatch a plan to trap him. And we read here that they go as a group. The administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king, verse 6. Down in verse 11, then they go as a group and find Daniel praying. And then in verse 15, the men went as a group to the king uh, to tell the king what he's been doing. There's a conspiracy at work here. Now, in the midst of this, uh, the king, Darius, he doesn't particularly have it in for Daniel. In fact, he looks to do everything that he can to save Daniel. And he even, when realizing that there's nothing that he can do, asks that the king, who is God over all, might rescue him. And uh, he rushes to the uh, den the next morning to find out if Daniel is uh, safe from the lions. Uh, discovers that he is safe, that God had sent someone to rescue Daniel and uh, shut the mouth of the lions. And so then the king throws all of the bad guys into the lion's den where they're ripped apart before they even get there. And then at the end, you get uh, another statement by the king where he declares who God is. It's a wonderful statement and we'll get to that in a minute. But what is it teaching us? What's this chapter all about? Well, I want to start by three things that it's not teaching us. Now, this might seem fairly obvious, but I think we need to be good Bible readers. And the, the first thing that it's not teaching us is that we should pray three times a day. Um, you see, if we should pray three times a day based on this, 
then we should also go upstairs and find a window that's going to be facing Jerusalem. Of course, this isn't here giving us a prescription for prayer. What we've got is a description of what Daniel is doing. Um, the New Testament and the rest of the Bible has much to say about how we should pray, and that is not the purpose of this chapter. It's not giving us a model for prayer. Second thing is that this chapter is not saying that if we pray, God will rescue us. Uh, now, God does rescue people who pray, but that's not what this chapter is saying. In fact, there's no direct link here between Daniel praying and God responding to save him. It's just not made. It doesn't say that God heard Daniel's prayer and so rescued him. Uh, it doesn't say that Daniel prayed to be rescued. In fact, we don't know what he did uh, when he's inside the den. We're not told. And it's certainly not the case that Daniel comes out of the lion's den praying and saying that as he prayed, God answered his prayers and God is so faithful and you should pray and God will rescue you as well. We're not told that this is what's going on. Not told to pray three times a day, not told that if we pray, God will rescue us. And we are also not to learn from this chapter that God will not let any harm happen to his people. Now, it's certainly true that there have been uh, three people, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego with the fiery furnace and one person, Daniel, with the lion's den who have been kept from any harm whatsoever. No singeing of the clothing and the lion's mouths were shut and there's absolutely no harm to Daniel. But the reality is right through scripture we see it and I think it's even implicit uh, in the book of Daniel that many of God's people were harmed many of God's people. And uh, we certainly saw that when the Babylonians went in and ripped the heart out of uh, Jerusalem. We see it in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament tells us that if we will trust in Jesus, then we will be persecuted. It says that we're going to face trials and difficulties of many kinds. It says that we live in a world which is groaning. It's subjected to frustration. There's pain and there's evil and there's all kinds of things. We're affected by what everyone else is impacted by, plus the persecution for following Jesus. So if this isn't what the passage is saying, then what is it teaching us? And in order to be able to answer that well, we need to look at the context. And someone has said recently that if you've got a text without a context, then all you've got is a con. Or what I was taught was that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof test. Text. Well, anyway, we need to look at the context. Context in Daniel, first thing that we see is almost a mirror image with things that happened back in chapter 3. So with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you've got the people on that occasion being asked to bow down and worship an idol. They refuse to do it. They're thrown into a place where they're supposed to die, and then they get rescued, and then the foreign king proclaims how amazing God is. This time, though, uh, it's a foreign ruler from the Medes, Darius, who doesn't say you've got to bow down and worship uh, this particular uh, image, but he says you're forbidden from praying to God. Now, he was caught up in this, sure, it's a trap and so on. But again, there's a major threat if he does this. He does continue to pray. 
He gets thrown into the lion's den. He's, he's preserved. He's rescued. And now Darius is proclaiming the wonders of the eternal king and his salvation. So there are connections here within Daniel. But there's also something of a theme which goes through about God's sovereignty and his goodness. We're constantly reminded that God is the king over all kingdoms. He's the king over the Babylonians. He's the king over the Persians and over the Medes. And we see that kingdom being declared by those who rule under God's authority. And we see his salvation at work as we look at this book. But I think there's something deeper going on, not just the context of Daniel itself, but we do well to look at Daniel in the context of the Old Testament as a whole. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you can, on the one hand, look at history. That is, there's been a chronology that goes through uh, Abraham and God's promises, going to the land, being in slavery in Egypt, coming out of slavery, into the promised land, then the establishment uh, of the king, and then the uh, building of Jerusalem and the establishment of the temple, and God ruling over his people there. He's on his throne in the temple. Uh, that's where sacrifices are made. That's where God is honored and worshipped. And the king and in the line of David is to rule over God's people forever. And under Solomon, it's really reached a high point. But then after that, it's pretty much downhill all the way until God brings about the judgment on his own people through the Babylonians and then judgment on the Babylonians via the Persians. And that's about where we've got to here. But in the context of all of this, God is bringing his word uh, to the people in particular through the prophets. And uh, Daniel, we are told, is actually been reading one of the prophets, uh, a prophet who was a contemporary by the name of Jeremiah. And so if you come to Daniel chapter 9, we actually get an insight into what Daniel's been reading, but also perhaps what he is praying. And um, if you look at this, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel's given this insight by God through the prophet Jeremiah, and he's reading Jeremiah as scripture already. So I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. You see, we get an insight in Daniel chapter 9 as to what Daniel is praying. He's praying to God because God had promised that the exile would come to an end. And so he's praying in confession and he's, he's calling out to God to bring that to an end. Now, why is he doing that? Well, yes, there's Jeremiah, but there's a, a longer history. If you go back further, if you go back to the time of the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicates the temple and he prays to God. And I want to pick up um, a part of his prayer, because in 1 Kings chapter 8, from verse 46, Solomon prays about what God might do after he's kicked the people out of the land and they're captive, if they turn back to him in prayer. And listen to this. 
So from verse 46, 1 Kings 8, When they sin against you, that is when Israel sins against you or Judah sins against you, for there is no one who does not sin, everyone does, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away or near, i.e. Babylon and other places, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned. And we've done wrong and we've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land that you gave their ancestors. Notice the direction here. If they pray toward the land that you gave uh, their ancestors, towards the city that you have chosen and the temple that I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive all their offences that they've committed against you, and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. See, Solomon is praying that God will hear the, the prayer of the people who are contrite, the people who are sorry for their rebellion against God, the people who are now willing to return, to repent, to, to look to God, and they show that they are confessing their sin by looking to Jerusalem, looking to the temple. And God, who doesn't dwell in the temple, the temple's been destroyed. He dwells in heaven. He hears their prayer. See, I don't think it's random at all that Daniel is praying and upstairs in the room that is facing Jerusalem by that window. Because that's what Solomon's prayer said should take place. And Daniel had been reading his Bible. Now, when you see it in this light, you see that there's more than just Daniel having his quiet times three times a day. Daniel is aware of the promises of God and he's, he's holding on to these promises. And I think he would have been praying this prayer and these prayers of, of confession before God, interceding for himself and his friends and, and, and the people around about, reaching out to God and turning back to God again and again and again. And we've seen right through this book that Daniel trusts God and, and he prays towards the temple as he always had. And now, faithfully, uh, continuing to do that, even when told not to. Friends, Daniel's trusting in God. He's trusting in God to save him, uh, to save his people. Doesn't mean that he won't necessarily die himself, but he's trusting that God will keep his promises. And here's a man who's possibly been doing this for 66, 68, going on 70 years. He's probably in his 80s and he perseveres. So the Daniel context, the Old Testament context, but then where is this pointing us? Where, where does it, it lead us? Jesus and the lion's den. What are we to look forward to from Daniel? Because we must read this through a Christian lens to see what difference Jesus makes and how he fulfills it. Now, there are a number of ideas, and I'm sure you've probably heard some of them as it was read, echoes uh, from the Gospels. Uh, you find echoes with the people conspiring against the innocent Daniel, the people conspiring against the innocent Jesus, them working out some kind of way to trap him and then working out a way to trap Jesus. Uh, you, you find similar examples that 
that Daniel continues to pray and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays. Um, you, you find God sending a messenger to shut the mouth of the lions. You find a messenger who comes to Jesus in the garden, an angel, um, and, and he's with Jesus. You, you see the reference there to the seal being placed over the den. And of course, in the Gospels, there is the rock that's placed over the tomb and, and sealed by the, um, the rulers. You, you find that the women come to Jesus at dawn, um, the, fo- the, um, the following Sunday, whereas here uh, the king comes to the den at dawn to see whether Daniel is made. I, I think we're meant to hear the echoes pointing us towards Jesus. But, but more significant than this, Daniel remains an encouragement to us. We've seen already in this series how Daniel's uh, circumstances are picked up in that passage in Hebrews chapter 11, where the faith of God's people is an example to those of us today who are going through hard times trusting in Jesus. Yes, there are people who were um, oppressed in the past. There were people whose lives were threatened in the past. There's people who lost their lives in the past, but they trusted in God and they never got to see what they were looking forward to in their lives. We are to trust as they did. And I think that's where Hebrews takes us. So if you come to the New Testament, having seen this great cloud of witnesses that we are to follow after, he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, God knows that there's going to be hard times for his people. It's going to be a real test of endurance. Will we keep on going as Christians? Well, Daniel is an example. Daniel, he goes into captivity in 605. This is 538 BC. 62 years in that century. Five years in the other. That's 67 years. Here is a man who has trusted in God from his youth to his old age. And I think there is a message to you and to me to our children, to our grandchildren, to our friends, to our partner, to our parents, to our grandparents. We are to encourage each other to push on in the Christian walk, not to give in, not to give up, to keep on praying, to keep turning to God. If God is real, and he is, and if God is king over all, and he is, and if God listens to our prayers, and he does, then keep coming before him, bowing before God, asking him to help us and keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. See, the Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's not all about the day of your uh, conversion. Some of us can remember a day. We walked down the front. We prayed the, the, the sinner's prayer. We put up our hand and said that we've become a Christian. We were baptized in the ocean or in a pool. We actually made a step to become a Christian. That's great. But will we keep on trusting in Jesus? Will we persevere? The parable of the uh, soils reminds us 
that there will be some who start really well but fall by the wayside. Let us not be among those who fall by the wayside. Let's learn from Daniel. Let's learn from the great cloud of witnesses to keep on fixing our eyes on Jesus and running the race. It's a marathon, an ultra, ultra marathon. Let's keep on going. Let's persevere. Let's go the distance. In Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, we have something absolutely wonderful and unbreakable. And that is the kingdom of God has come amongst us. And if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then by God's spirit, we are already in that kingdom. So let's push on. Let's keep on going until one day we're able to see Jesus face to face. Oh, what a great day that will be. But let's persevere. And friends, that's why it says back in Hebrews chapter 10 and, uh, and in verse 25, it says there, or 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and to good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. We need each other to spur each other on, to keep on going, to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, to persevere. I, I feel really privileged to be part of Salt Church where we gather together with people um, who are in their early years, people who are in their teens, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. We have people gathered who are at different stages of their Christian walk and journey. And we can learn from each other and encourage each other. And for those of us who are in our later years, let's not grow weary. But let us keep going until we reach that final destination. And for those of us who are just starting out, and the parents of those who are just starting out, let's encourage these people to always and only look to Jesus, that they might spend eternity with him and his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, please keep us until the end. Help us not to be led astray. Help us not to be sucked in by the world. Help us not to give way to pressure and temptation. Help us keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus to keep going until the very end that we might share with you in the great pleasure of being part of your eternal kingdom. Amen.